0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the very first episode of the Star Wars podcast, Legends of the Jedi, where we talk about the Ancient Jedi Order and the Knights of the Old Republic. Now, a lot of you probably know what I mean when I talk about the Knights of the Old Republic. It's a video game that came out in July 2003, probably one of the best Star Wars video games ever made, if not the best. It takes place thousands of years before the original Star Wars trilogy. Uh, It was so popular that it spawned a sequel, Knights of the Old Republic 2, as well as a massive multiplayer online RPG just called The Old Republic. Although it was originally developed by BioWare, it was announced earlier this year that Aspire Media is going to be doing the remake. Aspire Media was responsible for porting Knights of the Old Republic 1 and 2 to mobile. So you can play it on your Android or your iPhone. Uh, I've actually tried Knights of the Old Republic on my Android and it is fantastic. They did a great job porting it. So I'm very excited about the remake. You know, when I first played this game nearly 20 years ago, it captured my imagination. It has all the best things that Star Wars has to offer. Mystery, adventure, a galactic conflict, and, spoiler alert, a devastating superweapon. You can't have Star Wars without a giant superweapon. So my aim in this podcast is to delve deep into the lore surrounding this era of the Star Wars Expanded Universe. But before we even do that, I want to throw up a disclaimer. Most of the lore that we discuss in this podcast is not considered, air quote, canon. So what do I mean by canon? Well. When Disney bought Star Wars, they pretty much jettisoned the old expanded universe, with a few exceptions. They started fresh for the most part. So with those exceptions in mind, any Star Wars comic, novel, or game that came out before the Disney purchase are no longer considered canon. They're not part of the uh, official continuity. These materials were rebranded as Legends. Now the interesting thing about this particular era is that Disney hasn't really touched it yet. There's a couple minor references in some of the new material. You know, for example, I think they mentioned the Sith Wars in one of the novels, or at least a couple of the novels, and they mentioned Revan in one of the visual dictionaries, but for the most part, the era currently remains untouched in the rebooted universe. Now, my personal hope is that they import as much of the Legends material from this era as possible into the new continuity, because it's great, or else I wouldn't be doing this podcast if I thought otherwise. And to that end, I'm hoping to create a bit of a streamlined chronicle for people who are interested in learning more about that time period and why it's so inspiring. Because I gotta say... These stories inspired me when I was a kid, and they continue to inspire me today. So, with all that said, pick up your lightsabers, pick up your blaster pistols, and join me on the journey to the past. Q Star Wars opening theme An even longer time ago, in a galaxy far, far away. Before there was the Knights of the Old Republic, there were the Tales of the Jedi. Now, Tales of the Jedi was a series of comic books, it ran for about 35 issues. And the story spanned for over a thousand years of Star Wars history the tales were published by Dark Horse comics beginning in 1993 so Dark Horse had the license for Star Wars comics before it was taken back by Marvel so originally Marvel had uh, the license for Star Wars comics and uh, eventually shifted back to Dark Horse but because Disney owns Marvel and Disney acquired Star Wars the license went back to Marvel Uh, before it did though Dark Horse did some amazing work with the old Star Wars continuity so flashback to 1993, at that point, much of what later came to be known as the expanded universe hadn't even been published yet. There's a quote I pulled from Wikipedia. Uh, it's a quote that's attributed to Chris Gossett, who was one of the artists of the series, Tales of the Jedi, and it pretty much sums up my feelings on the project. So Chris says, With Tales of the Jedi, the potential is as vast as the galaxy itself. We haven't scratched the surface of what Tales of the Jedi could be. It's so far back in the past, there is no reason to fear that any story we tell could interfere with core continuity. The time period was pretty much a blank slate, which allowed the contributors to have more creative control. And using that blank slate, they created something that was new enough to be interesting, but also familiar enough to be Star Wars. And that's a crucial balance to strike, and they did it well. Tales of the Jedi was made up of eight story arcs. Today we're going to delve into the very first story arc, The Golden Age of the Sith, It's probably more accurate to say we're going to dip our toes into the first story arc, because we won't get through all of it. But first I want to drill down on some real-world details. The Golden Age of the Sith comprised six issues, and it ran from July 1st, 1996 to February 1st, 1997. The story was written by Kevin J. Anderson, who some of you might recognize that name as one of the more prolific Legends authors in the 90s. You know, He did the Jedi Academy trilogy, and I think he did the Young Jedi Knights stuff as well. Uh, The Tales of the Jedi, Golden Age of the Sith, was penciled by Dario Carrasco Jr. and Chris Gossett. Duncan Fregredo was responsible for the cover art, and honestly, do yourself a favor and check out this cover art online if you can. It's next level good. Now let's talk more about the lore. The Golden Age of the Sith begins in the year 5000 BBY. BBY doesn't stand for Before Baby Yoda, although I'm sure a lot of people wish that it would. BBY stands for Before the Battle of Yavin. That would be the decisive battle in Star Wars Episode Four, where Luke Skywalker blows up the Death Star. So this takes place five thousand years before that point in time. Now I'm going to do another rewind because you're going to need a bit more context before we delve into the Golden Age of the Sith. I'll try and keep it brief and to the point. In the old continuity, the Old Republic was founded twenty-five thousand years before the events of Star Wars Episode Four. Around the same time, the Jedi Order, which had already existed in one form or another, agreed to join the Old Republic. At this point in time, the Sith did not exist. As with any millennia-spanning galactic organizations, not everything was hunky-dory for 25,000 years. There were a few schisms within the Jedi Order itself. The one that's relevant for our purposes is the Second Great Schism. Here it is, and my eternal credit goes out to Wikipedia for synthesizing all this information. In 7000 BBY, so 7000 years before Episode 4, the Jedi Order underwent what's called the Second Great Schism which resulted in a time known to history as the Hundred-Year Darkness. What caused the schism? Well, a bunch of heretical Dark Jedi began experimenting with forbidden alchemy. Essentially, they created monstrosities, which the Jedi High Council deemed to be abominations of the Force. So fighting breaks out between the Jedi and the heretical sect. The fighting lasts about a hundred years, hence the name. So after the hundred years... The jedi order finally won a decisive victory at the battle of corbos and they arrested the 12 dark jedi it's uh, important to note that the dark jedi were led by a high general named Ajunta paul that name comes up in later materials tales of the jedi kotor so you're going to want to keep it in the back of your mind all 12 of these heretics were banished to the depths of wild space these exiled dark jedi eventually found their way to a planet that will be very familiar to anyone who's played knights of the old republic The planet was named Korriban. It's the homeworld of the Sith species. Now I want to pause for a second. What do I mean by Sith species? Because, you know, to most people, the Sith are a religious or philosophical sect. Well, yes, eventually they do become one. But in this time period, they're an actual species of humanoid aliens. These uh, Sith, purebloods as they're called, are generally characterized by their red skin color. They have sharp predatory features, red cheek tendrils that kind of hang down. Uh, bone spurs on various parts of their bodies, and in some cases, glowing yellow eyes. Genetic variations exist, as they do in all biological creatures, but these are some of the main features that one might find from a pure-blooded Sith. So what did the Dark Jedi exiles do when they came up against the natives? Well, surprise, surprise, they conquered them. And they named themselves the Dark Lords of the Sith. Okay, awesome. There's the history lesson that gives us the context we need to dive right into the first story arc. Now, obviously, there's a ton of lore that I haven't mentioned. I mean, I think I glossed over like 20,000 years of galactic history in a few minutes. But if this thing keeps going, maybe I can come back one day and revisit some of those earlier eras. Okay, so buckle in, because I'm about to engage the hyperdrive, and take you back to the golden age of the Sith. We start with issue zero. On the inside of the front cover, there's a message from Kevin J. Anderson. He's giving special thanks to Tom Veitch for his help and imagination in creating the ancient Star Wars universe. So some of you may remember Tom as the guy who wrote the Dark Empire trilogy, and you'll come to see he basically helped create the early stories in the Tales of the Jedi. Now, Golden Age of the Sith takes place first chronologically, but it was published in 1996, and like I said earlier, Tales of the Jedi started in 1993. So, much like the Star Wars movies, they started later in the Tales, and then eventually came back to do some prequels. To avoid confusion, I've decided to lay it all out for you in chronological order. So here we have it. The first page starts with the words, Scrawled in an ancient parchment being unfurled by weathered hands. And here's what it says. Conquest and unification. The complete history of the Old Republic would fill a thousand libraries. But some events, some sacrifices have become legend. Passed from generation to generation. The epic of the Great Hyperspace War. How the bold explorations of young Gav and Jory Darragon brought two galactic empires crashing together. How Odan Ur became a powerful Jedi and eventually a master. And how the seven worlds of the Koros system were finally united by the wise and skilled Empress Tita. Five millennia before the birth of Luke Skywalker and the fall of Palpatine's empire, a thousand years before Exar Khan and Ulic Keldroma joined forces in a sweeping conflagration known as the Sith War, The story begins. So obviously there's a lot to unpack there. Let's put aside that last part about Exar Kun and Ula Keldroma. I promise that we will eventually get to the Sith War and you will become intimately familiar with those two names. For now, let's focus on the people we're about to meet in the story. The brother and sister hyperspace explorers Gav and Jori Dargon, The wise Empress Tita. And the powerful Jedi Oden Ur. When we delve into the first couple pages of the story, we meet Odin er He's a steely, gray-skinned humanoid alien, and he's poring over some ancient tomes. Much like us, Odin er is fascinated by lore and history, especially the history of the Sith. Now, it's a bit unclear from a narrative perspective how odin er knows that the Sith exists, but uh, let's just put that aside for now uh, because he mentions the Sith. So clearly he knows that the Sith exists in some fashion, even though they haven't really emerged on the galactic stage yet. So Odin ur is in a room with his master, the great and wise Jedi Uru. Now Uru is a squid-like creature encased in a crystal structure. And, you know, he reminds Odin ur er that even if he would prefer to spend his entire life in the company of scrolls and documents, a Jedi has other responsibilities and duties. You know, you can't be a, a bookworm forever. You got to take your head of the books and get out there and help the people. Now the comic goes into the great schism that I talked about earlier. It refers to it as the first great schism but as i told you before it's actually better known as the second great schism Uh, this is what happens when you have a story early on before much of the continuity has been established and so they later retcon some things and they added in the great schism before this one but you know the takeaway here is that this is the second great schism not the first that story in the comic recounts how the dark jedi exiles found the primitive sith like i've told you and conquered them the sith primitives treated these exiles as gods And with unlimited resources and willing slaves, the Jedi exiles forge the Sith civilization into a new empire, bringing about a golden age of evil. Think Egyptian pharaohs, because that's essentially what these early dark lords of the Sith were. And, you know, it's helpful to use that analog if you need some kind of real-world grounding. Not to beat a dead Bantha, but it's kind of unclear how Odener has access to this information in his scrolls. Before their reemergence on the galactic stage, the Sith Empire was a closed off society, so it's unlikely that the Jedi knew much about their existence, but it's clear from this that they knew something. So, flashing back to Oden Ur, he's sent on a mission by Master Uru to help Empress Tita unite the Koro system. We learn that she's united six out of the seven worlds in that system, but the struggle on the last world isn't going so well. Oden Ur, who would much rather read history than make it, he says, agrees to go. It's his duty. So we flash to a new scene and a new location, the planet Sinagar, which is one of the six united worlds in uh, the Koros system. Welcome to Arba the Hut's service dock, where spaceships are fixed cheaply, quickly, and most importantly, quietly. All repairs guaranteed, but only for a limited time. So we meet a husband and wife, Hawk and Tamar Derrigan, and they're thanking Arba for fixing their ship, the Shadow Runner. You see, Ma and Pa Darigan are high-risk supply runners on a mission of mercy and profit. They're going to be bringing supplies to that besieged seventh planet in the Koro system that I talked about earlier, and we find out that the planet's name is Kyrick. We also find out that Arba repaired their ship in exchange for a percentage of their profits. Arba tells them to keep their voices down. He doesn't want anyone to know that a HUD extended credit, oh, heaven forbid. We also meet our protagonists, Gav and Jory Darrigan. Like your typical teenagers, they want to follow their parents in another ship called the Starbreaker 12. Pa Darrigan tells them, no, 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 it's too dangerous. And Arba's also like, hey, Starbreaker 12 is actually collateral, so it's staying here at my service dock. Hence, the parents leave, the kids get left behind. You know, that old trope. In the meantime, our Jedi buddy, Odan-Er, meets up with Empress Tita's Jedi advisor, Mehmet Nadil. Uh, Mehmet Nadil's this uh, green humanoid alien. He kind of looks like Kit Fisto because he has the tendrils coming down the back of his head. But he also has this um, uh, this appendage coming out of his chin. So Nadil explains the situation to Odan-Ur. A bunch of pirate rebels on Kirik have blocked all attempts to unify the planet. Odan-Ur is all like, hey man, I'm a scholar, not a fighter, and Mehmet Nadil, foreshadow alert, says, well hey, maybe we could use a bit more brains over brawn right now, so let's go meet the queen. Odan-Ur is brought in front of Empress Tita, and she's rocking some ridiculously sweet body armor. Think warrior queen when you think of Empress Tita. She kind of reminds me of Wonder Woman when she's in that gold-plated armor in the, in the uh, DC movies. So Tita's, uh, she's talking to some military advisors about how they have to launch another full-scale assault, and that's when Odin Ur comes forth, and he literally pulls out a scroll out of his vest or whatever, and he's like, hey, Empress Tita, there's this sweet technique that might be able to help reduce casualties, and it's called Jedi battle meditation. Mehmet Nadil says, okay, that's great. Why don't you tell me on the way? And they all depart for the front. So let's pause for a second and talk about this. Jedi Battle Meditation is a pretty significant skill in Legends. You know, there are sources out there that say Palpatine used it at the Battle of Endor thousands of years later to coordinate the Imperial assault on the rebel forces. So it was an attempt to explain why the Imperials start to lose en masse when Emperor Palpatine gets thrown down that reactor shaft by Vader. Anyways, the important thing to remember at this point is that Jedi Battle Meditation exists and that it's a pretty significant thing that's going to come up again and again even in Knights of the Old Republic. So back to our story we learn very quickly that oden ur has never actually been in a battle before on the way to the front he explains the concept of jedi battle meditation to memen and Dil. it goes a little something like this with sufficient concentration a jedi can strengthen the hopes of their allies and heighten the fears of their enemies in battle kind of like a buff so thus what the armies know in their hearts must become true because they believe it so strongly oden ur's battle meditation starts to take effect immediately the pirates and Kirik freak out, and they begin fleeing the battlefield. We're reminded, however, that sometimes, breaking an enemy's spirit is merely unleashing the last reserves of desperation, and that's what happens here. One of the pirates gives some kamikaze order to die fighting and try and take down as many of the weakest targets as they can. Enter stage left, Ma and Pa Darrigan. Remember those two? The supply runners who were going to the front to deliver supplies? Well, in a fictional universe that loves orphan protagonists, I'm not really liking their chances right now. And not surprisingly, they got caught in crossfire, and their ship goes kaboom. Exit stage right, Maan Pa Daragin. In the aftermath of the battle, Mehmet Adil congratulates Odan-Ur. He's like, hey, your battle meditation really saved a ton of lives here today. But Odan-Ur is not so happy with the result. He says in response, well, tell it to those poor souls in the supply ship, you know, referring to Maan Pa Daragin, or their charred remains at this point. Back on Sinegar, Arba the Hutt shares the bad news with Gav and Jory. Mom and dad didn't make it. The last casualties of the unification wars now i, I want to pause here for a second and just give a shout out to the artists who worked on this book i didn't know until now that it was possible to make a hut look sympathetic but look no further than arba the hut in the last pages of golden age of the sith issue zero i i love this character he wears this fez on the top of his head he clearly cares about Gavin and jory he's such a softie he's like the first nice hut that you ever meet so Arba's all like hey look i know the starbreaker 12 was collateral but your parents paid for it in blood. Here's the keys, it's yours. Well, he doesn't actually say here's the keys, but he gives them the ship. So issue 0 wraps, with Gav and Jory looking up into the sky and resolving to make their parents proud, and go and explore the galaxy. Now we start with issue 1. It opens with another gnarled old hand clutching a Sith holocron in between its long, pointy fingernails. Holocrons are these ancient data repositories. Jedi or Sith would use them to store knowledge, typically in the form of an AI that took on the personality of whoever made the holocron. So for example, if Obi-Wan Kenobi created a Jedi holocron, you know, you'd get some little hologram of Obi-Wan telling you all of the wisdom that he stored in the holocron of all of the Jedi knowledge that he accumulated over the years. That's basically how it works. The important thing to know here is that Sith holocrons are shaped like pyramids and Jedi holocrons are typically shaped like cubes. So we start in with the opening scrawl. Into the unknown. For centuries, in a protected vault in the great library of Ossus, the captured Sith holocron closely guarded its legends and histories. Until now. So again, five millennia before the birth of Luke Skywalker, etc., etc., the Old Republic was riding high and expanding. It was a time where the great Jedi Knights had tamed a mere portion of the galaxy. A time of rugged frontiers, colony worlds were being established, while portions of space remained unexplored. Long-distance travel was often treacherous and uncertain. Each year, new hyperspace paths were mapped by intrepid hyperspace explorers, who sought useful roadways through an incomprehensible dimension. These intrepid risk-takers, some called them crazy, relied on blind luck as much as skill gambling everything in a high-stakes game to map a valuable new route across the star lanes, hoping to find their fortune instead of their deaths. So we open in on Gav and Jory leaving Sinegar on the Starbreaker 12, heading for parts unknown. I just want to point out here that their ship has what appears to be sails on it. If you play Dungeons and Dragons it kind of looks like one of those Spelljammer ships with uh, sails on the top. It's absolutely wild looking. I think it's designed to look like an ancient vessel uh, and so, you know, it looks it has sails and it looks like it's almost wooden in nature. Anyways, Gavin Jory are decked out in bracers. They're looking like they stepped right out of the ancient world from our earth, you know, they have like these these metal uh, neck bands and stuff like that. They have like head head uh, gear and they look like ancient Romans or ancient Greeks. And I want to take another moment here to appreciate how absolutely insane their job is. They're basically pointing their ship in a direction in space and taking off. Like Han Solo says, and I think in episode 4, traveling through hyperspace is like dusting crops, boy. Well, one wrong coordinate and you could find yourself hurtling right through a planet or a star. You know, Gav seems like a bit cheerful about it. He's all like, well, we haven't gone down a black hole yet. So, so they roll the dice and they engage the hyperdrive, heading into parts unknown. And when they come into hyperspace, everything looks good. They think they might have found a shortcut, something they can, you know, sell to the Navigators Guild. But when they barely make it through a starstorm cluster in one piece they realize, whoops this is another bust no one's ever going to purchase this route it's all time to limp back home in our damaged you know sailboat so they head back to sinagar and beg arba the hut to fix their ship you know even though arba is a softy he's he's obviously had enough of these two he's at his wit's end so jory tries to sweet talk him but arba puts his foot down or i guess in this case he puts his tail down and he's like look you don't get the ship back until you pay me in full I'm losing too many credits as it is, you know, so he's a nice guy, he's a nice hut, but he's a hut after all. So his sister's charms having failed, now Gav cuts in, and he's all like, Arba. One of our routes was actually certified by the Navigators Guild, and Arba shrugs it off. He says, who would ever use that route? The danger rating on it is astronomical. Then we flash forward to a new scene with a lizard merchant dude, I think he's actually a Trandoshan, and he's all like, I need to get these components to a mining colony. And what do you know? There's this route. It's the same one that Gav got certified. This will get me there even quicker. The lizard merchant doesn't even care that it's, it has a dangerous rating to it or whatever. He just wants to send in his drone ship and you know, deliver the supplies. So he decides to use it. And the way it works with the Navigator's Guild is kind of like you pay to use that route or something like that. So if someone uses that route, then the Navigator's Guild is obligated to pay Gav and Jory uh in this case uh there's an interlude where we see a red supergiant star that's basically about to go nova an automated distress beacon is sent out by the lizard merchant's drone ship so he did use that route Uh, then this star decides to go nova before it gets destroyed by the unstable star this ship sends out a uh, some kind of distress beacon basically saying do not use this route discontinue it walk away when the lizard merchant finds out that his ship was destroyed, he just loses it. He grabs one of his cronies and he's all like, get me the guy who mapped this route so I can repay him. are in full. So now we get a sense of how stretch-thin Gavin Jory are. You know, they've gambled everything on this hyperspace exploration venture. They had to sell their home just to pay for ship repairs. Now all they have is only a few trinkets to their name. So we see Jory Darrigan walking through the streets, fretting about how poor she is now, and Empress Tita at the same time is having a giant parade to celebrate the end of the Unification Wars. In this parade, we see Oda and Ur er decked out in some sweet new ceremonial garb, and off to one side, Jory's watching in the crowd, and here we find out that both she and her brother tested high with Force potential, and that they could have been trained as Jedi Knights. At this point in the continuity, we didn't have the prequels around, so it wasn't established that kids were taken by the Jedi at a very young age. So bear that in mind when you ask yourself why she and her brother weren't just taken and trained by the jedi to begin with jory's excuse is that she and her brother didn't have the patience for all that training and concentration they were too focused on their get-rich-quick schemes which pretty much tracks given the fact that they have no money now and they're basically walking around uh, i don't know a couple credits away from being destitute so going back to empress tita on her victory float we have a bit of foreshadowing here she turns to her jedi advisor Mehmet Nadil, You know, the guy said kinda, kinda, kinda looks like Kit Fisto. And she goes all Neville Chamberlain on him, saying, peace for our time. Well, clearly now that she said that something bad's gonna happen. So then we move back to Gav, who proudly tells Arba that someone actually used his hyperspace route. And he expects a big fat check any day now, coming from the Navigators Guild. As he struts off, sort of feeling on top of the world, he gets cornered by a bunch of local thugs, who tell him they're working for the Lizard Merchant. And we find out that the Lizard Merchant's name is ssskkk I can't even pronounce that properly. It's like S-S-K and then Cahor. So they basically tell him, hey, you know, Kahur's after you. You better watch your back. Later on, the lizard merchant approaches these same street toughs and he's all like, yeah, I want you to take out Gavin Jory. Here are their player's cards. He hands them literal like cards of Gavin Jory. He says, buy back my honor and I'll only be satisfied when they're dead. So... We find out that Gav and Jory are basically living in a tent these days. That's how poor that they are. The Street Tufts approach them, and this time they're actually out for blood. Not surprisingly, Gav and Jory run away. But eventually they're cornered. And you know, one thing I will say about these local toughs is say what you will about them, but they have the market on cornering people. I think this is the second time in four comic book pages that they've actually successfully cornered someone. So, just as Gav is lamenting the fact that they never learned any Jedi training, Who should show up but our old friends, Oden, Ur, and Mehmet Adil? Snap hiss, they engage their lightsabers. Wait, let's pause for a second and talk about lightsabers in uh, Tales of the Jedi, because they're really cool. These lightsaber hilts look like ancient sword hilts. They're not the metal cylinders that you see in the later movies. The end of the hilt has a cord attached to it, and that cord is also attached to some kind of energy pack or backpack or proton pack or whatever that the Jedi wear. So these lightsabers don't have a self-sustaining energy unit within the hilt. Uh, it's actually built into their into their energy pack. These thugs are all like, Meddling Jedi, mind your own business. There's a contract for these two. And the Jedi, on the other hand, are like, No, we got to protect innocents. That's kind of our job. So when the thugs move in to attack, they get absolutely dismantled by the Jedi. Odin Ur actually ends up killing one of the thugs. And afterwards, he tells Nadil that he's been shamed by it. Well, that shame doesn't really last very long because in the next panel, they're telling Gavin Jory to get it a Dodge. They're like, you're not safe on this planet, you're not even safe in the star system. So, for lack of a better plan, Gav and Jory decide to steal the now-repaired Starbreaker 12, and they decide to make off for the Great Unknown. They basically know they have one last shot to get it right. Find a viable hyperspace route, sell it to the Navigators Guild, and hopefully pay off everyone that they owe. This issue ends with them getting chased into orbit by the local authorities. Jory punches in some random coordinates and once again engages the hyperdrive. Into the unknown. Before we cap off today, there was an interesting question that I wanted to talk about. Uh, Someone wrote into the letters column, I think it's called something like Jedi Journals, and um, they they asked a a question that I think it's worth at least bringing up and discussing for a little bit. Vincent Money from Brooklyn, New York asks, Why doesn't it look like things have advanced at all that much in 5,000 years? The columnist, I think his name is Dave Land, basically says, Hey, There have been some advances with lightsabers and hyperspace in the past 5,000 years, but advances are kind of hard when there's all these intervening events like the Clone Wars. It's kind of hard to come up with a better hyperdrive when someone is waving a lightsaber in your face. Sir, I cannot say that I agree with you. That rationale is somewhat flawed because I think the best time to come up with a better hyperdrive is when your very existence is threatened by an opposing force. There's that saying, necessity or war is the mother of invention, so I, I can't say that I agree with this viewpoint. And I could probably get into other explanations as to why there was such stagnation over the past 5,000 years of galactic history, but that's not the point of the program. And it's frankly, it's fiction, so any explanation that I provide is probably as good as the next. Suffice it to say, I thought it was an interesting bit of trivia to bring up, and also some food for thought for those of you who like to uh, try and retcon or explain away these uh, continuity issues. So, there you have it. We've reached the end of our first installment. Hopefully you're all still with me. I know there was a lot to take in there, but I wanted to spend a bit of time establishing these characters because we're going to be following them for the first couple arcs of the story. Tune in next time as we finally come face to face with The Dark Lords of the Sith at A Funeral for a Dark Lord. May the Force be with you, always.